Mark chapter 8. I'm going to start reading this morning in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus has this pivotal moment with his disciples, and the moment culminates with the disciples confessing through Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus turns and he tells his disciples very plainly, it says, that he will die. I will suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. I will be killed and I will rise again in three days. And after Jesus says this to them, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Now, why does Peter do that? Why does Peter take him aside and rebuke him? Our default understanding of that is what? Peter loved Jesus, right? How many of you think Peter loved Jesus? Okay. We understand that Peter loved Jesus. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him because he loved him. But was that what it was? Does the passage tell us anything else about why Peter might have been saying that to Jesus and certainly why Jesus in turn rebuked him. I mean, he wouldn't necessarily rebuke him for loving him, would he? There's something obviously there that's that's more than we see just naturally and easily, because Jesus goes so far as to rebuking Peter by telling him that he is Satan. Get behind me, Satan. The context of this passage shows that in some way Peter was ashamed of Jesus' words. And he took Jesus aside to rebuke him for saying them. Matthew 16:22 gives Peter's actual words, or at least some of them, that he says to Jesus. Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
If we were there and we were putting it into words that might have been in Peter's mind, the motivational thoughts he was having, we might think he he would say something like this. Let's have no more of this talk of dying. Alive Jesus is more profitable than a dead Jesus. Isn't that clear? I've seen you do amazing things. You can take all the governments and you can rise to power and I'll be one of your generals. But if you continue this talk of dying, well, our constituents will leave. They'll fall away and our army will dwindle. All of this language, it's very weak, Jesus. We shouldn't talk this way. We shouldn't talk this way. Why did Peter say what he said? God forbid that this should happen to you. Because Jesus said his mind was set on his own interests and not on God's. Jesus was speaking to his disciples about God's interest. Jesus was about to deny himself and take up his cross. And at that very moment, Peter was ashamed of Jesus and ashamed of his words. Now, we all should learn to be ashamed, what it means to be ashamed when we're very young. We look at, uh, as children, we're driving down the road or we're driving down the road with our children and we see a group of men in orange jumpsuits on the side of the road picking up garbage with numbers on the backs of their jumpsuits and what do we think? These men have done something wrong. They've broken the law. They're wearing suits of shame as they stand on the side of the roads and as they pick up the garbage. They're wearing suits that actually show their own shame as they're working. We learn that as young children, and we grow to understand shame variously by those examples that we see in life and by what our parents tell us. And I'm sure Peter also learned shame as a child. He understood what it meant to be ashamed of something. His failure was not that he didn't understand shame. Peter's failure was that he was ashamed of anything that did not serve his own interests. His failure was that he was ashamed of anything, or in this case, particularly something, that did not serve his own interests. He was ashamed of God's interests because they were not his own. Now, if you go on our website, you'll see that Church of the Good Shepherd is evangelical and reformed. Have you guys ever heard those terms? Have you seen those on the website? You have, haven't you? We're evangelical and reformed. We call ourselves evangelical at CGS. But tell me something this morning. Are evangelicals in America ashamed of God's interests? Are evangelicals in America ashamed of God's interests? What do we really want as evangelicals? What are our interests? Do we really desire our interests above God's? Now, I'll tell you some of our interests, and you're going, these are going to ring true with you, as they do with all of us. We want to be comfortable as evangelicals. We want freedom to have our comfy church services. We want to be able to have good jobs and make good money. We want nice houses in the suburbs with manicured lawns. We want people to like us. We really do. We're against the sins of our nation. 
just so long as our opposition to them doesn't threaten our tax-exempt status. But when that gets threatened, hmm, we worry that the intolerance of Canadian laws against Christians will come our way. Have you thought about that? I know you have. But as we presently do have the freedom to speak the words of Christ unashamedly here in our country, unlike those poor people in Canada, do we speak them? Do we say them? Or does the expression of our opposition to sin never rise above or even close to the level of threatening our comfort? Does the expression of our opposition to sin never rise close to the level of threatening our comfort? We believe in hell and heaven. And we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But do we make those exclusive claims to our neighbors, our families, our co-workers? Or are those too uncomfortable to make because they would jeopardize our reputations and cause people not to like us. But what of God's interests? What of God's interests? You all have heard of special interest groups, right? Where are they all at? Washington? Special interest groups in Washington. And they're lobbying for the interest of their constituents, right? Well, we're supposed to be God's lobbyists in this world. We're supposed to have our minds set not on our interests, but on his interests. We think about America and we think about our religious liberty here. And quite often we get confused about America and we think that it is, it is the place of arrival that we finally arrived at a place of freedom. We have freedom here. We've arrived. America is the spot. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we sang uh, uh, the hymn, The God of Abram Praise, which is a favorite hymn. We all like to sing it. One of the verses of that hymn goes like this. The goodly land I see with peace and plenty blessed. Sound like America? A land of sacred liberty and endless rest. There milk and honey flow and oil and wine abound and trees of life forever grow with mercy crowned. Sacred liberty, it says. Sacred liberty. A land of sacred liberty. You know, sacred liberty can never be a function of legislation. Sacred liberty is a product of godliness. The only land of sacred liberty is one where nothing, absolutely nothing, conflicts with God's interests. That is the only land of sacred liberty. Now, what land is that? Is it Britain? Is it Switzerland? I mean, that's where Geneva is, right? Calvin was in Switzerland. Is that the land of sacred liberty? Is it the Holy Land? Is it Palestine? Is that the land of sacred liberty where only God's interests are honored? 
Is it America? Are we that land? No. Where is that land of sacred liberty? It's not in this world. We couldn't take a jet to it. It is God's kingdom. It's heaven. Likewise, the only Christian that has liberty, the only one of you and I who have liberty, is the one who has learned to put his mind on the interests of God because we're set free from the interests of ourselves in this world. Think about John the Baptist. Think about taking your mindset and putting it back in New Testament times and John the Baptist, right? And John the Baptist is there. He's, uh, he's, uh, 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 he knows that Herod has done some evil sin. He's taken his brother's wife. And John the Baptist is concerned that he might lose his right to rebuke Herod. And so John the Baptist forms a lobbying group to protect his interests for the right to rebuke public officials. Do you see how crazy this is getting? To rebuke public officials so that they can behead him later. It's crazy. There is no power in all creation that can attend, that can keep us from attending to the interests of God in obedience. There is no power in all creation that can keep you and I from attending to the interests of God in obedience except what? Our sin of attending to our own interests. That's the only thing that will keep us from attending to the interests of God. In His power, nothing can keep us from attending to His interest. Nothing kept John the Baptist from attending to God's interest. Did it? You know, we think about school prayer and... uh, Ten Commandments in the, in the courthouses and all those kinds of uh, things that we worry about. The, the ability to say homosexuality is a sin. You know, that's the thing from Canada that we're all concerned about. We worry about all those kinds of things. And, and tell me something. Is there anything that can keep you from, from saying that homosexuality is a sin? Short of someone cutting your tongue out? And then, of course, they would only do that because you were being faithful to God. Can anyone keep you from praying? Short of killing you? They can't. They can't. Can can anyone keep you from honoring God's law? They might arrest you. They might do all sorts of things, but they can't keep you from doing it. You know, there are two or four maybe particular doctrines at CGS that we talk about a lot and that are very uh, close to our culture. And you can probably name them real fast. And when we talk about them and when they're preached about, we talk about them and we give them service. But there's also this thing in us that says, you know, I'm tired of hearing about that. Just tired of hearing about that. You know... Why do we always have to talk about that? Why do we always have to talk about that thing? And it comes to the point where we almost, well, we don't almost, we become apologetic 
about God's words and his truth. And, you know, you become apologetic only when you start to become you start to feel the pressure of the truth of something bearing on you. And you become apologetic only when you start to be ashamed of something that you shouldn't be ashamed of. And you know it. The fact is that we should never be apologetic about Christ and his words. And there aren't just two or four little places where his words ought to be strong in our culture. His word is relevant to every place in our culture that is disobedient to him. And that's a lot of places. That's a lot of truths to make us uncomfortable like Peter was uncomfortable. Well, what are we ashamed of as evangelicals? Well, and as Church of the Good Shepherd members, what are we ashamed of? Well, sometimes we're ashamed of our pastors or of our, of our church service because if twice a month we have communion and the pastors always stand here and they always give offense of the table, which means we tell people that some people can come and have this meal and some people can't. And it's not a meal for unbelievers and it's not a meal for the unrepentant. And that's hard because what we do there is we discriminate and it's hard for us to discriminate. We have it in our hearts that everybody should be equal and everybody should be tolerated and everything should be nice. But that gets uncomfortable. You get uncomfortable hearing that. Don't you? I do. I have to say it. I know you have the same sins that I do. Well, we're ashamed to tell our friends that if they do not submit to Jesus Christ, they'll spend eternity in hell. That's a hard thing to say. I'm not suggesting you walk right up to them today after service and say that. But there's a time when you probably should have. And there'll be a time when you should. And we're ashamed to do that. We're ashamed to tell our school friends that we abstain from premarital sex because such behavior offends God. We call it something else. Well, it's, you know, we're being, you know, there's good health reasons and, you know, it's good psychologically. We're ashamed to tell our parents that we're raising our baby instead of padding our resumes after they just put us through college and graduate school. We're ashamed of Tim Bailey because he talks about groups of people that we don't want to offend. We're ashamed to bring people to church because Tim might talk about their group or their sin. We all know he's right about the groups and the sins. And that silence would be shameful. But Tim, we say, it's not in God's best interest to speak to these people so directly. If we could just massage them a bit. We could slowly get them to see the problem with their sin. But what are we really saying? Are we saying that we want them to hear at a pace that they can take? Or are we saying that we want them to hear at a pace that we can take? The truth is, in our hearts... We don't want to talk to these people about these things at all. 
And then we look at Tim or who's ever preaching on a given Sunday as the pot stirrer. Pot stirrer. You know, there's other people in our church that are pot stirrers. Carol goes down and protests at Planned Parenthood. But it's not so bad with Carol because when we're driving by and we see her in our car, nobody knows that we're connected to her in any way. Right? There's Carol. Hi, Carol. Sure glad nobody knows I know you. Or when Abram Hess writes in the IDS a statement against homosexuality, we read it and we rejoice with Abram. Thank you, Abram, for writing that. And they write homophobe on the windshield of his car afterwards. And we're glad for Abram, but then at the same time, it's kind of convenient that nobody knows that we're really associated with Abram. None of those people that wrote homophobe on his car actually know that. The problem with bringing people to church on Sunday morning is, what? It's hard for me to distance myself from Tim when I'm the one that invited them to come and hear him. Right? Pot stirrer. Jesus said we weren't to be offended at him or his words. Well, we make some false assumptions about Jesus. Incorrect assumptions about Jesus. Two primarily. One of these two. One is we make the assumption that Jesus was diplomatic and massaging. Was he? Or was his, was his presence offensive? Do you think he was in the habit of massaging people to God? Show me where. Look at Mark. We started off this morning in chapter 8, where he's rebuking Peter and calling him Satan. Let's go back. Earlier in the chapter, he accuses his disciples of hard-heartedness. Before that, he calls a Syrophoenician woman a dog. Before that, he calls the religious leaders hypocrites. Before that, he told his disciples in the presence of 4,000 people, hey, you give them something to eat. Wasn't that nice and gentle? We don't have anything to give them. Before that, he told his childhood friends and neighbors off for not listening to him. You don't read those words and think that, do you? He stood up in, in front of his family and his friends and he said, You reject the prophet of God. A prophet of God is without honor except in his own city. Is not without honor except in his own city. And he's just, he's just telling them off. He's rebuking them. Before that, he interrupted a funeral. While the mourning was going on, he walks in and he says, hey, the child isn't, isn't dead. The child's just asleep. And you're Peter and you're standing there. And all those people that are mourning look at him and laugh. You, you're, you're hanging out with this guy. He's a lunatic. Of course the child is dead. We know dead. The doctor's been here. Before that, healed a demoniac and wiped out a 2,000-head swine herd. And the people wanted him to leave. And there was financial loss. Swine weren't just pests. It was somebody's livelihood that went into the, into the sea. 
And before that, he rebuked his disciples for a lack of faith. Just go through and look at it. That's, that's his presence. And what about his words? Have you read his teachings? Who didn't he offend? Didn't he have any love? How could he say such words and love people? You know, the truth of the matter is that if Jesus were here today in this room, all of your pastors lumped together would look like a bunch of tame lapdogs. Do you understand? Tame lapdogs. We would look weak and effeminate. And we would look like we hadn't ever had any notion of what love really was. Do you understand that? Jesus was powerful and he wasn't weak. And don't mistake him to think that he was. The second incorrect assumption that we have is that Jesus was Jesus, but then we're supposed to be diplomatic and massaging. That was him. Now we're us. We're supposed to be diplomatic and massaging. Is this the discipleship that he has called us to? Is this what he meant when he says, take up your cross and follow me? This wasn't a command to be different than him. It was a command to be like him. And he sets out the prerequisite for discipleship. He says, set your mind on God's interests and not your own. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Lose your life to find it. What do you think these words mean in Mark 8? Well, what they mean is, when you add them all together, they mean they equal not being ashamed of Jesus or his words. That's what they are. And they're supposed to bring us joy. Living like this is supposed to bring us joy. Did you ever think about those words of the disciples after they had been arrested for preaching? Okay. And it says in, uh, in Acts, let's see, in Acts 5, starting in verse 40, that they called the apostles in and then they flogged them. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council. How, what, what did they do as they went on their way from the presence of the council? They went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It doesn't say they kept on, it says they kept right on. Teaching and preaching. They kept right on. They did what? They kept right on preaching and teaching. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be ashamed of by other people. Luke six twenty two. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, your fathers used to treat the prophets. We were talking in an elders meeting recently, and Tim had gotten an email for somebody on his website, on his blog site, and the guy had accused him of being an ignorant Baptist. Okay. Now, you have to understand that why he was being accused of that. It was the guy's way of saying, you know, I hear your words and I'm so ashamed of you. You're just an ignorant Baptist. Now, what, what should Tim's response be at hearing that he's an ignorant Baptist? 
Well, in that context, he should leap for joy. Because he was worthy to be what? Insulted. Because of the truth that he was holding up. What about when others fulfill Christ's commands, like our pastors and our elders and our fellow Christians? How do we respond then? Matthew 10:40 says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. What should we all expect, though? Well, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, what hope do we have? How can we possibly do this? What power can enable us to follow him without shame? And in order to get to those questions... I want to ask you a a strange kind of question to test your Bible knowledge. How many of you know who Onesiphorus is or was? Onesiphorus. Okay. I'll tell you that until God started working with me about this stuff right here, I couldn't have told you who Onesiphorus was. Okay. Onesiphorus is mentioned in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1. And he's mentioned by Paul in passing, and this is what it says. For this reason I suffer these things, this is Paul talking, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have trusted to him until that day. And he tells Timothy to go on and and retain to the standard of sound words and guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure that has been entrusted to you. And then he talks about some men. He says, He says, you beware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom were Phrygelus and Hermogenes. They turned away from him. Everybody turned away from him. You know why they turned away from him? Because they were ashamed of him. He was locked up in prison. He was in chains. And they were ashamed of him. They were ashamed of what his devotion to God had brought him to. And they all turned away from him. and They all rejected him. Except... Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus should be one of our heroes in the faith. His behavior is contrasted with men who were ashamed of the words of Christ and ashamed of their Savior and ashamed of their Savior's servant, Paul. He's not even listed in my concordance, but he should be one of our heroes. Paul's words to Timothy in that chapter are what we need to look at very quickly. Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I remind you, this is verse 6 of the same chapter, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, 
But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Kindle afresh the gift that is in you. We all understand what this means. Yesterday, we were some of us were over at the Ewers, and, and they had a fire pit in the backyard, and Wayne Huck was by the thing, and he's a pyromaniac. He just kept sitting there stirring the coals and flipping over the logs because he was kindling afresh the fire. He just kept, kept it going, moving things around so that they would burn. Well, this is what Paul says to Timothy. Kindle what's been put in you. Stir it up. He says, you have not been given a spirit of timidity. What he means is, you have not been given a spirit of cowardice. You have not been given a spirit of cowardice. Even though this isn't the spirit that has been given to God's people, it's often the spirit that rules us, isn't it? He said, you have been given a spirit of power. Power so that you can do the works of God, so that you can not be ashamed of the words and person of Jesus Christ. You have been given a spirit of power in Acts 4.31 when the disciples had been released from their second time of being arrested. It says that they went into a house and they prayed and that while they were there, the house was shaken and that they were filled with the spirit and they began to speak the word with boldness. They were given a spirit of power to be bold. And he said, you have been given a spirit of love. Well, I can't muster love up in my heart. Can you just muster up love in your heart for people? To tell them the things that would save them from hell? Can you just muster that up in you? I need God's Spirit to give me love for people. The truth is that when we turn our minds on the interests of God and we worship Him, that He will give us a spirit of love that we will be able to love people. And thirdly, a spirit of discipline. We have been given a spirit of discipline. I was trying to think of something that would make this real practical. So there were four women talking in a playground. A Mormon, a Catholic, and a Jew. And you think this is going to be a joke, but the fourth one is my wife. And this is a true story. And as they were talking in the playground, three of the women were talking about who wears the pants in their family. And they were laughing and joking at the idea of God's established authority. All of them except my wife, whose heart was vexed. She was in turmoil. She wouldn't laugh. And she didn't know what to say. But she was vexed, and so she stood in the park, in the in the in the in the playground, wanting to say good news to these women and looking to God to to give her that spirit of discipline. Well, He already had given it to her. You see how she didn't laugh, and that's the beginning, certainly, of God's discipline in her life. And in that moment, in that opportunity, God was sanctifying my wife and changing her. And giving her more and more of a desire to be able to tell the words of Jesus and not be ashamed of them. But this is the spirit of discipline. Self-control 
that God gives to us. It's not a timid spirit. Now, if you know my wife, she's a timid woman. But this isn't a timid spirit. This is a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of discipline, of self-control. And this is what God gives to us. This is how we live our lives serving Him. This is how we take up our cross every day and follow Him. This is how we are obedient to Him. This is how we are not ashamed of of Jesus Christ and His words. Because He gives us His Spirit, power, love, and discipline to follow Him. Let's go back to Peter. We started off with Peter. God wanted Peter to serve his interests, but Peter wanted God to serve Peter's interests, and the two were in conflict. What had to happen? Peter had to die. Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he tells everybody, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. If you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Well, Peter did that. Peter heard the rebuke, and that day he died. And he died the next day. That wouldn't be the last day, by the way. And he died the next day. He died on the day that the rooster crowed. He died on the day that Jesus told him that, unlike John, he would be led away in years to come by the hand to some place that he didn't want to go. He died on the day of Pentecost when he stood and told the Jews that they had the blood of Jesus on their hands. He died on the day he went to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, and told him the gospel. He died the day Paul rebuked him in Antioch. And he died finally on the day when, according to tradition, he was taken by the hand and he was led to a place he didn't want to go and they crucified him upside down. That's what they say about Peter. But that was the last day he died. You see, our lives are lives of disciples and we live every day taking up our cross. And that means that we lay aside our interests and we lift up God's interests unashamedly, serving Him. And so we all also will have our last day, a day when we will die no more. But until that time, we set our mind on God's interests and not our own. We deny ourselves and take up our crosses. We lose our lives to find them. We kindle the fire. We believe His words, and so we speak His words. Today I've chosen a a closing hymn from, it's actually a poem from the book Pilgrim's Progress. And this was written by John Bunyan in the 1600s, if you're not familiar with the book. For more than 300 years, I would guess, this book was the second most read book in the world, second only to what? The Bible. I think it's been replaced now by, I don't know, some communist red book or I don't know what. Um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't know. But Bunyan wrote this book while he was in one of his two prison stays. The first lasted 12 years, and I don't know what the second prison stay lasted, how long it was. He wrote this book while he was in one of his two prison stays. And he was a prisoner because he felt obligated 
to unashamedly preach the words of Jesus Christ. And so he did, unashamedly. Well, it just so happened in the country where he was, it was illegal to preach unless you had a license. Unless you were duly licensed, you couldn't preach the words of Jesus Christ. And just like the disciples in the New Testament who were told that they couldn't preach, they were forbid from preaching, who went back out into the street and the first thing they did day after day after day was they did the exact thing they were told they couldn't do. Just like those disciples, John Bunyan went right back out and started preaching again. And they came to the service and they carried him off in the middle of the service. And they put him in the jail. And in the jail he writes Pilgrim's Progress. It's the story of us. It's the story of us coming to God and dealing with our sins and dealing with the temptations of this world. It's an allegory. It's beautiful. Read this book. Read this book. Read it to your children. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Well, today we're going to sing a hymn that's based on some verses in this book. And the hymn is in the book is the verses of a character called Valiant for Truth. And that's what we need to be, valiant for truth as believers, not ashamed of Jesus or his words, but valiant for truth. The, the, the hymn is called He Who Would Valiant Be. And I'm going to read you as it is in the book. And then Curtis Cook is going to come and he's going to sing us the first verse with the piano. Then we're going to sing the three verses together, starting by singing the first verse again, because it's not a familiar hymn to us. Who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be. Come wind, come weather. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound. His strength the more is. No lion him fright. He'll win a giant fight. He'll with a giant fight but he will have a right to be a pilgrim. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies flee away. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. This has to be our prayer. And if you are Hearing these words this morning, you know that you have to put application to Paul's words to Timothy to kindle up your fire and to look for the power of God, the Spirit of God in your life so that you will not be ashamed of Him. And you know that there are practical ways that you can do that and that God will, God will strengthen you to do that. So let's stand together and let's sing.